the World Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the podcast. Look, we love speaking to amazing nomads because they do so much to inspire us all to explore our boundaries. But even amazing nomads get their inspiration from somewhere. Today's guest was inspired by Eric Weinmeier, a blind man who climbed Mount Everest. Let's just hear a little from Eric's book, Touch the Top of the World, A Blind Man's Journey to Climb Further Than the Eye Can See, as it was read by narrator Nick Sullivan. On a past training climb, I had made the mistake of bragging to my teammates that I could sense when we were over a hidden crevasse by the soft, tremulous feel of the snow and the slightly hollow thunk made by my bootsteps. So they had decided to test my claim by pushing me forward and making me lead across the notoriously suspect snowfield below our 14,000-foot camp. This will teach you to brag, super blind guys. Now, Eric has inspired many people, not just those with a disability, to pledge to live a no-barriers life. Susan Spann is the award-winning author of the Hiro Hattori mystery novels, and she took a no-barriers pledge to climb all 100 of the neon Yakumezon, the most famous peaks in Japan. I think I put a little bit of Italian in that film, but that's okay. <laughs> She's done 80 so far at the time of recording. If she is successful, no doubt she will be. She'll be the first cancer survivor to do so within a year of completing treatments. I had made the decision because I'd lived my entire life basically motivated by fear. And I had, as a lawyer, done that because it was safe. It was what I knew. I had gone to law school because my dad had gone to law school. And so after 20 years of that, I was feeling unfulfilled. And I decided, after reading a book by Eric Weyenmeyer, If he could live his life in a way that didn't allow anything to hold him back, why was I allowing fear to hold me back? And so I made the decision to shutter my law practice and come to Japan and attempt to climb the Hyakumezan, or the 100 famous mountains of Japan, in a single year. And at the start of that adventure, uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, actually, right before I started. During that time, I had also signed a contract with my publisher to write a book about this experience. Um, And it talks about my overcoming cancer and coming to Japan to climb the 100 summit. And at the beginning of my adventure, I was reading a book on the train and the book happened to be No Barriers, Eric's newer book. In the process of reading the book and starting these climbs that I was effectively doing exactly what his No Barriers pledge is asking people to do, which is to break through the barriers in their lives and live their best, most fulfilled life. So going back prior to reading Eric's first book, what were you frightened of? Why did you carry this fear around? You know, I'm not exactly sure. I really believe that part of the problem was inherited. (laughs) My father was a very talented man. He should have been an architect, but instead he was a lawyer. I think that's because he was afraid of failure. And so all my life I was afraid of failure and I was just afraid that I would try something and then I would end up broke Disappointing others, I think, was more important, most important of all. Okay, so you made this decision and then dealt this dealt this horrible health blow. Would have been very easy, I'm guessing, based on this idea of fear to give up. Indeed. Uh, in fact, I was I was very tempted. Had I not signed a contract with my publisher three days before my cancer diagnosis, but between that contract and the cancer diagnosis, 
I felt like I needed to do it for them, but more I needed to do it for me. It was even more important than before. Really? Or were you just scared of disappointing them now you'd signed a contract? (laughs) I won't lie and say that wasn't in there. But the truth is that when I was diagnosed with cancer, I realized that I had lived my entire life in fear. I had let it control me. I had let it make the decisions. And so as terrifying as it was, I felt like here I have cancer now and I may never have the chance to do these things I wanted to do. And so it made it all that more important to get better and to get healed and to get on those mountains. So so why 100 of the most famous peaks in Japan? I'm thinking if it was me, one would be enough, Susan. <laughs> the truth is that it's, a, it's sort of a two-part answer. So when I was much younger, I became very fond of reading mountain books. And I read all kinds of climbing books. That's how I found Eric's first book. But I had read this wonderful book by Kuyuya Fukada called Nihon Hyaku Maison, or 100 Famous Mountains of Japan. And Fukada's book describes a set of 100 specific mountains that he believed, if you climbed them all, you would come to understand what it was to be a mountain in Japan, the essence of Japanese mountains. And so people have climbed these 100 mountains, which was my original goal, to climb those 100 mountains and become the first Western woman over 45 to do it in a single year. Now, the Japanese think this is ridiculous because they think a lesson is to be learned over a lifetime, not in a year. And given the typhoons and the other logistical challenges, and also what I've learned along the way, I actually agree with them. So I am now climbing 100 mountains that have famous historical significance um, rather than just these 100. But that was the foundation of it. And when you say mountains, um, they're not anything like Everest, obviously. No, they are. They range in height from, well, the smallest official mountain in Japan is only 23 metres high, but it's not one I'm counting. (laughs) 23 metres? Where, where is it? Where, how is it classed as a mountain if it's only 23 metres? Uh, you know, it's in Osaka. It's one of the few mountains in Japan that was quote-unquote man-made because it was created when they dredged Osaka Harbour to deepen it. <laughs> I might become the first woman to climb that mountain 100 times. 23 <laughs> metres, it's very achievable. <laughs> well, there's a little place nearby that will give you a certificate if you climb it. Oh, yeah, love a bit of a certificate. So... Um, I have climbed Mount Fuji. Most of the others that I'm climbing are over a thousand meters. So they are, you know, they're significant climbs, but they're not, they're certainly not Himalaya climbs. So is it like a hilly hike that you're doing or is it proper mountain climbing? A little bit of both. You know, some of the mountains are more like hiking. Um, So there's no ice climbing. There are no ropes and rappelling. They're not the kind of faces that you see on Half Dome or real mountaineering. You know, they're they're more what I'd call a combination of, of climbing and trekking. And how are you going with your cancer? My CT scan last April was clear. My tests in November were clear. And so it looks as though we may have destroyed that little beast. Wow. Yay. Well done. Listen, you don't actually sound like a very fearful person to me just in this conversation that we're having. Are you different? Are you different now? Were you a different person before? You know, I think I faked not being afraid pretty well before, um, but I think I am far less afraid now. 
I've had to face a lot of different fears. Um, one of the things that I discovered along the way, I had been having chronic nightmares my whole life. And shortly before one of my climbs up in Hokkaido, I know this sounds really weird, but I actually had a dream in which I was talking to myself, woke up after the dream and realized that my nightmares were really the fact that I had never really loved myself my whole life. And in the dream, I gave myself permission, and it was okay. And I have not had a nightmare in seven months. That's pretty powerful. Why, why didn't you like yourself? It sounds like you've come from a home where education is valued. I do. And I think what, based on this dream and what I've come to realize in the mountains in hiking, was I just never felt like I was good enough. I never felt like who I was was good enough. I was always living for the next achievement. Maybe then I'll be good enough. And this hundred mountains have led me to understand that I don't need some kind of external accolade or achievement, that I'm okay for who I am. Well, on that then, so, you know, another 20 mountains to go, do you think you might find an an emptiness after you've achieved that or how are you going to how are you planning to deal with that if you've been you know somebody who is needs to achieve if you don't have a target are you going to be able to stay healthy well the good news is i'm actually also a novelist and i have uh, six mysteries in print they're set here in japan and so i do actually have a target because i have an obligation to my publisher every year which is good but I also do intend to finish climbing the actual Hyakumezan and to keep climbing other mountains and seeing things here in Japan and exploring. But now, instead of doing it because I will be better when I've finished it, I'm enjoying where I am now. And the challenges that I set for myself are just that. They're challenges to grow and to stretch, but not to become someone who's worth loving. How long have you been living in Japan? Uh, we moved over here on May 14th, which was almost a month to the day after I finished my cancer treatments of 2018. And how are you finding living there? What's, um, you know, they're a very sort of deep culture, a very spiritual culture as, as well. How are you finding that? Oh, I love it. You know, I when I was in my 20s, I or maybe in my 30s, I saw a television show, uh, one of Anthony Bourdain's no reservations programs. And he was talking with an expat who had moved to Vietnam. And they're talking by this muddy river and the gray clouds are overhead. And Bourdain asks the guy, you know, how did you fall in love with Vietnam? How did you come to live to be here? And the guy says he got off a plane in his, you know, college years and fell in love with Vietnam and never left. And I remember watching that television show in my thirties and thinking, that guy's weird. And I got off the plane and I smelled the air and I looked around and all of a sudden I understood exactly what that man had said to Anthony Bourdain. This country got in my heart and in my blood and it just refused to let go. Just listening to your life, I'm thinking like Phil, I don't see any fear there. You know, going through a law degree, starting a practice, closing it down, becoming a novelist, heading off to another country to live, climbing mountains, that takes... That takes guts. That doesn't sound like someone that's, you know, hiding away like a frightened little mouse. Yeah, but you don't see in there that I've always still been the little six-year-old who was standing in line at the carnival to bounce in the bounce house and read the sign on the side. This is a true story. The sign on the bounce house said, enter at your own risk. And at six years old, I got out of line and walked away because I didn't know what the risk was and I was afraid to take it. 
I was terrified that if I got in the bounce house, I was somehow going to die. What's so an anxiety that we're talking about? You know, I had terrible social anxiety. I had to learn to manage it because, of course, as a lawyer and a law school professor, you know, I would stand up in class and I had to learn how to do that. But the whole decision to become a lawyer was motivated by fear. Um, I wanted to be a a writer my whole life. And my father said, you know, how are you going to earn a living? And, of course, there the fear kicked in. And that was the bounce house, right? All over again. I can't become a writer because there are risks and I might end up broke or dead. (laughs) And so I became a lawyer. And I eased my toe into writing. I did it part-time while I was practicing law. I'm wondering, and this is a bit of a woohoo moment, um, I'm wonder, wondering whether somehow you were delivered this diagnosis of breast cancer. Was some higher being saying, you want to be frightened? Here you go. I'll give you this. Face your fear with that. Uh, you know, I, I think that's actually quite possible. Never once after my diagnosis or during chemo or any of it did I say, oh, why me? Because every time I started to do that, my response to myself was, you know, in your deep heart of hearts, you've known since your grandmother died of breast cancer when you were 12 years old, you've known you were going to get it. And the timing did seem too coincidental to be coincidental. I make the decision to break free. I make the decision to face my fears. And literally within a month, I'm diagnosed with cancer. That's not a coincidence. However, it's an opportunity. What would your advice be then to to travellers that have, you know, that sit back of a night and read books on climbing mountains but are too frightened to do it? What would your advice be? Do it. It doesn't matter how old you are or what other things you're facing. It's like Eric says in his No Barriers Pledge. It's about making the decision not to let what holds you back holds you back any longer. And my mother is 75 years old, and she climbed Mount Fuji with me. And she didn't get all the way to the top, but she got most of the way. She got a surprising way for somebody who'd never climbed a mountain in her life. I wasn't able to climb the whole actual Yakumezan list for various reasons, but I shifted it. Now I'm climbing a hundred mountains that are of historical significance. I'm seeing things I never dreamed I would see. I'm doing things I never dreamed I would do. And what I would tell those people is magic happens when you put on your boots and have the courage to take that first step. And that is such great advice. Magic happens when you take that first step. Now, we'd love to hear from you on what's holding you back or, in fact, held you back and how you've used travel to face your fear. And if you know an amazing nomad who demonstrates discovery, connection, transformation, love, or, like Susan, fear, email us at podcast at worldnomads.com and we'll line them up. Yep, you can get the World Nomads podcast on iTunes or you can download the Google Podcast app. Please subscribe, rate, share, and tell your friends about us. Next week, we're going to take you to Rwanda. Bye. See ya. Amazing nomads. Be inspired.